Hey everyone, Brian here. Before we begin, just a quick note that this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners, and so listener discretion is advised. If you struggle with suicidal thoughts, there is help. Seek medical assistance and contact local resources for ongoing support. Hi there, and welcome to Our Hollowed Fruit Podcast. Here we will meet inspirational LGBTQIA persons whose journeys and practices illustrate the flowering and fertile possibilities for all of our souls. I'm Brian Anthos, a spiritual guide for pleasure and peace seekers. You can find out more about me at brianantos.com. Let's take a moment now to pause and find some quiet and to consider again that we are a part of something larger than ourselves. As we begin, let us be at peace. This is episode seven of Our Hollowed Fruit. Today we welcome life, sex, and intimacy coach, James Laidler. Hello world, hello universe. I'm Brian Anthos, and welcome back to our Hollowed Fruit podcast. Today we welcome James from Chicago. Totally not planned, but James, you are the second guest in a row from Chicago. Jeanette, who joined us in episode six, lives in Chicago as well. So I'm not quite sure what the Chicago connection is, but we're going to run with it. And James, welcome, and thank you for joining us on our Hollowed Fruit. Thank you for having me. Yes. James is a British Academy Award-winning journalist turned life, sex, and intimacy coach. James helps gay men find their own pathway to authenticity. He, in his own words, can help you find that missing something. James, thanks again for taking the time to be here today and maybe helping us find that missing something today. Shall we? Let's hope so. We'll uh, see what What's missing in your life, Brian, at the moment? <laughs> Uh-oh. This is a whole other episode <laughs> that I was planning for. <laughs> uh, well, that's a nice little trail ahead, then, to what's coming up. <laughs> I love surprises. <laughs> so, James, first, let's start and talk a little bit about your days and offerings as a coach. Maybe what do you coach? Who do you coach? And how do you coach? How do you do it? Well, the answer is, and it's a horrible one, but it depends. <laughs> Basically, at its core, I'm working with men to get them to a decision and exploration of what being gay means to them. Too often in our culture today, we are presented with cultural stereotypes or uh, visual representations in media of what it means to be gay. So if you are not drag queen loving, cocktail drinking, gym going, affluent and desperate to get married to that one person and uh, adopt a dog. If you don't see yourself reflected in that stereotype, there's this internal question of, you know what, am I really gay at all? Or am I ever going to find a community that's authentic to me? And that is the central idea, authenticity. It's tough to find. It requires a lot of introspection. It requires a lot of experimentation too. Dipping your toe in all sorts of different 
communities, different types of people, different types of spaces, because gay spaces are not what they once were. It's not just a bar anymore. Yeah, no doubt. And thanks for that explanation to get things going. What are some of those spaces? What what are the topics that you're exploring? Um, what is it that gay men come desiring, looking for, questioning? Uh, what does that work look like? So I'll divide it into two, really, the personal and the professional, even though as minorities, as sexual minorities, those two things inter- intersect all the time. The first piece is that term, homosexual or gay, because the majority, the straight majority, have defined us as a community. In fact, we had to do it ourselves in order to get security, safety. You don't hear about straight community, right? So our sexual identity is based entirely on that, who we have sex with, which is just a tiny facet of the gay identity. So when we divide that up into the personal and the professional, what does that look like? Well, for professional development, lots of people want to see how they can weave their authentic selves into work. For a lot of people, that might mean coming out in some form or finding a way to reflect their real life in their office situation. You know, if you're having a a photograph of your significant other at a desk, or it might just be how to be a better leader trying to get over any internalized homophobia or gay shame about being your true self around people who may be reluctant to that. In fact, there are all sorts of writings and teachings around the huge benefit that gay people have to be effective leaders at work. For example, we uh, learn from a young age that we are different, and so we have to develop really honed empathetic skills to learn when situations are safe for us. Is this a moment where we can be our authentic selves? You know, you're in that Uber and the driver's like, hey, what does your girlfriend think of this? And you do this internal calculation of, do I correct them or not? Do I go along with it? So we become really good at empathy. And that translates to an office situation quite nicely because as a leader, you need to be able to be attuned to the people around you? Are they taking this messaging well? Are they, is there something underlying that is making them less successful at their job? That is a great skill and something that many straight people do not have innately and it's very hard to learn. Then from the personal perspective, it's a huge scope, right? I work with people who need a hand going to networking events, making new friends because as adults, how the hell do you make a new friend, right? Particularly if you've moved from a rural area and you're dropped in a big city, suddenly those social scripts are incredibly different. You need to learn them. And I am essentially the the gay life Sherpa, right? (laughs) Trying to introduce people to this breadth of gay experience. So personally, dating, you know, is it about the apps? Do I need to go to a particular space and meet a guy? Do I need to go on thousands of dates to hopefully meet someone who's intersect, uh, whose interests intersect with my own? And then there's also the, the physical side, the intimate side. So how do you learn how to have sex? As gay men, our very first sexual experiences are ones that are often unpleasant, particularly if you're talking about anal sex, right? There is a lot of preparation, communication, understanding. And when your first sexual experience is already riddled with nerves because you're doing something that is brand new and you are you know from the outside world that it is a taboo or it's unusual, 
it doesn't go well. And that might put you off various uh, sexual experiences for later in life. Sure. So really stripping your values and your beliefs back to the core, back to the studs, and rebuilding them so that the decisions you have come to as to how to explore the world are based, rooted in evidence. You've experimented and you've come to those conclusions consciously. Who is this work for? Is, is there a particular life situation that comes to the space more often or that you build it for? Is there a certain age group that is coming to this space? Uh, what does what does the work look like with different generations? So a good core of my business is for people aged like 38, 39 to 55. That's a broadish church there. Yeah. But we're talking about people who are successful in their careers and they are heading into middle age it's coming at them like an express train and they've taken a step back and realized oh god i feel a little bit stuck in my life maybe i've been great at my job and i've got this core group of friends around me but there's something kind of missing how do i find out what that is and then as we transition into that slightly older age group there is then this question of, well, what does aging as a gay man mean? If I've got a partner, okay, what does our retirement look like? If I haven't, what does single life look like in retirement or dating as an older person? Perhaps you've come out of a long-term relationship and you're having to go back into the dating pool and you've realized that the entire scene has changed around mm. you. Um, we don't have models of what our of what our senior years will look like because the people who are the generation ahead of us were growing up in an era with the huge specter of aids across them and now they're aging into um, seniorhood and with a background instead of much broader gay rights they didn't have a model for what right. growing older looked right. like and then the people who are in that kind of 38 to 45-ish category, they have grown up. They had their youth, their 20s, in an era where they could express themselves, be their authentic selves, or at least explore that without the, without the train tracks of legislation. So they have a, had a different experience, too, of this living this life freely, being able to be themselves. And now they're like, oh, God. What am I going to do with myself when I've got like 40 more years on this planet? Because I have just been educated that to be successful, like straight life, you have those external markers of success. You find a partner, you buy a house, you get married, you have a kid, and then you wait till death. Well, we get to write our own rules. <laughs> <laughs> How do you have the conversation and, and what kind of conversation can we have as a gay community then of how do we create this? How do we create this life? How do we invent what is to come? Or, you know, as you say, there's nothing necessarily to follow. So how, how do we maybe more consciously live into days, weeks, and years? Um, how do we discern that future rather than just sort of taking it as it lies every day, if that makes sense? Well, you know, the answer to that question, we have all experienced over the last year, right? It is incredibly rare in your life that you get an opportunity to pause your life, 
to step back and, as I said, strip your values back to the studs and think about what is most important in your life. Now, I have had experience of this. I have been really fortunate to be able to take a sabbatical from my job at the BBC, coming to America, a new country, new career, new culture, and be able to have this journey of self-exploration, to be able to be more self-actualized, to assess the friendships, those connections that I want to make, so that the people in my life are authentic to me and they're nurturing for me. So when we think about what's happened in the pandemic, right, we have been able, we've all been thinking about what we loved beforehand and what we missed. And we've all been thinking about, oh my gosh, these are the things I really hate about being stuck at home, the stress of this, and things I'm looking forward to. But there is real room for growth when you think about the flip side to each of those. What were the things I was doing before the pandemic that really didn't bring me joy? You know, as Marie Kondo would say, what didn't spark joy, right? Mm, right. And then during the pandemic, what were the things I actually quite enjoyed? So from some of the clients I'm working with, for example, I have this, this one guy who was like, I feel really bad saying this, but my friends always wanted to go out to brunch on a Sunday and go from bar to bar. I actually really enjoyed having my Sunday mornings to myself and reading the New York Times and doing the crossword, having a slower start because I'm a bit of a morning person. And then I feel like I've gained more of my day back. Mm. Well, now that we're emerging for the pandemic in Chicago, we have now reopened entirely. He's got that opportunity to say, you know what? I don't have to do that anymore. Right. Because He's not going to be missed. This is, a, this is an activity that is restarting with his friends. Now, leaving people behind, though, can be a lot trickier than activities, than hobbies. Okay. You know, in truth, though, we all have relationships that are simply not mutually beneficial to us, right? At work and elsewhere, there are people who bring out the worst in us or simply make us unhappy, feel drained, belittle us, bring us down. This has been probably a welcome furlough from those kind of relationships. So there is a strategy you need to come up with to how to make those breaks permanent without bringing upset to yourself and to them. And this moment is probably the best chance that people will ever have to do so. So instead, you work on that list of things you want to keep, things that you want to build upon, Maybe during this pandemic, you have had more free time, no commute, for example, to, to develop your spiritual life, to start cooking, and you wish those practices could continue. Well, they can. You just have to do the work. And habit forming is incredibly difficult, right? We've all tried, maybe failed with that January gym membership. And we're like, we've got the membership, great. <laughs> now I'm going to be thin. And then by the time it gets to March, you're like, oh shit, I've only been twice, right? Why did I do this? Well, people we know have more success when they've got a personal trainer or they go to Weight Watchers. And what is different there? It's the accountability. Right. And so I have been described as not a drag queen, but a nag queen. <laughs> <laughs> I will be holding you responsible. We'll put these goals together. We'll look at your life. I will create you a roadmap, a project plan for your life that you can see, I can see. We'll monitor your progress and I will make sure that you achieve those goals. It's really interesting thinking about 
this intersection we're at right now of just what you were saying of mm, there's things we might like from this quiet time we've had for a year and a half, this different time, this time at home. I know I've said, oh, I'm going to miss this. Or I'm going to miss that. I'm, I hear all the time, you know, this from friends and family of things that we actually came to enjoy in the midst of chaos. Things that maybe were at first survival tactics and then things we realized maybe our bodies enjoyed. And so how can we capture some of that? How can we move forward with some of that? And, you know, we hear this term very often in all different parts of life of sort of a hybrid approach to life now, right? Or a hybrid approach to the workplace. And so isn't it interesting to think about what is our approach from the gay man perspective of what we're talking about today, specifically with you, you know, and all the other facets of life? What about just in my gayness? What, what is my approach to life now? And where is that intersection of being a member of the gay community and wanting to get back to maybe some of the things we've grown accustomed to in the gay community and some of the places and the friends and the events, but now also coming out of this very different experience of the pandemic time and the stay-at-home time? Um, I think it's a really worthwhile question how to do that more consciously and with much more discernment and to not be afraid, as you shared uh, from your one example of, I might not want to go to brunch or maybe I might not want to go to brunch every week, you know, but now, as you say, I think is this time to establish these boundaries with ourselves, with our friends, with our family, with our partners, with whomever to redefine who I am, what I want to do, how I want to spend my time, and to give ourselves permission to be okay with whatever that is. We don't have to go completely back to something. We we can be this hybrid gay person. Right. It is the punctuation mark in the long sentence of your life, right? We so rarely have a moment of pause forced upon us because there's always something striving for our attention. So instead of us all asking ourselves, gosh, how does it look to get back to normal? Instead, how does it look to get back to a new normal? And that is where it involves work. You've had those habits interrupted, so now a mindful approach to how to restart them. Because your normal does not need to be the old normal. So James, uh, take us on a little journey across the pond, as they say, to London. Uh, maybe give us a little sense of what life was for you in London, a little bit about your life, your career, um, and then maybe walk us into that moment where you knew something for you had to change and what that conversation looked like and what that journey has been. I was one of those kids that we hate, right, who is like, I know exactly what I want to do <laughs> and I am going to go get it. We all have envy when we see people in our life who are that driven. Right? Yeah. They know what they want, they go get it. And I'm like, oh God, I wish I had that determination, that energy, that drive. Because as we get older, all we feel like is we are gay and we are tired, right? Instead, I was this 
I remember being, what, 12 years old, and I never really slept the night very much. And I used to be, used to tell my parents that I didn't like watching domestic news because I thought it was too prosaic. I don't know <laughs> if I used the word prosaic at that time. I going to say, I at 12 years old, up. that's impressive. Right. I mean, I was precocious, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, would get up at like three o'clock in the morning because the BBC would broadcast its international news for just a few hours in the middle of the night. And 1997, Princess Diana died and it was mm. covered in the early hours of the morning. And I went to try and wake my parents up and say, hey, we've got to watch this thing. This is a big, significant moment. And they were like, no, it's you making it up that she hasn't really died. That would never happen. And of course, we all know what happened in the aftermath of all of that. And it was just horrific. Yeah. But at that age, I was able to see the power that being a journalist could have in shaping the narrative, in asking uncomfortable questions and challenging institutions. So I had been working in London for a very long time and actually the show I was working on uh, moved me uh, to the other end of the country. Um, we didn't have any choice really in the matter. It was move or be made redundant, lose your job. And it coincided perfectly with meeting my husband, we, uh, husband-to-be. We had been <laughs> dating for all of three months before we got engaged. Wow. My goodness, I have no idea how that happened, <laughs> right? Uh, at that point, I was like, getting a husband is the most important thing next to my career. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and uh, it came at the right moment in his career. He was a criminal barrister, the ones who wear the wigs in court, right? <laughs> and we upended our lives, moved to the, the, the north end of the country and lived there for five years. But we, so we were having to rebuild social structures, making new friends, new work challenges, but he had achieved what he wanted to achieve. I had then achieved what I wanted to achieve, and we both needed a change, mixing things up. And I firmly believe that in our lives, we, get a 40, maybe 50, and we either hit some brick wall or we take a sharp turn. And that we only have so many moves in us, this resilience to creating a brand new scenario for ourselves. And my husband wanted to be a pastry chef. He really enjoyed baking and wanted to crystallize those skills. But coincidentally, we had fallen in love with Chicago on a trip just a year or so before. Hmm. And... Chicago is home to a phenomenal pastry school. So off we went. <laughs> I was dependent on him. He took a student visa. I took a sabbatical from my job for a year because, you know, I wanted to see, I wanted to go back originally. Right. But we were here after, in fact, we moved to Chicago two days before the Brexit referendum. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I do describe myself as a Brexit refugee, <laughs> right? Because... We got here and it was probably a month in and we were like, oh gosh, this is where we're meant to be. We are feeling like ourselves. We, are, we have the freedom to do whatever we want to do. And we were fortunate enough to be able to make it our home. I got a green card because of uh, winning a BAFTA and being in the top 1% of my profession. And the American government also awards it uh, to your spouse too. So we were able, really fortunate, blessed to be able to stay. The challenge then, of course, is what to do next, right? Yeah. 
And uh, I did that thing where you kind of like turn your LinkedIn on and see what comes at you. I hoped that after a year, I would have had that Saul on the road to Damascus moment where the scales would fall from my eyes and I would be <laughs> like, this is what I am destined to do next. But it never happened. So I just saw what came along and I got offered an interview in a corporate consulting role, small business uh, based very near to where I was living. It seemed like, yeah, sure, going into big corporations, helping them improve themselves, become more efficient. That was a good part of work I was doing as, through my career at the BBC. But very swiftly, I realized that this was too much mentally because psychiatrists, psychologists have this kind of scale of disruptive events. And some of the most disruptive things to you are divorce, right? Uh, but things like new career, moving house, losing friends. These were all things that had happened to me in a very short space of time. And I realized I'd probably underestimated because in our mind, moving to America is just like, well, it's just Britain with a funny accent, right? <laughs> and it, it really is not. Every day is a cultural education. Every day I'm learning a new piece of vocabulary because I get that familiar to me look of uh, confusion uh, as I say something and they don't quite understand right. what I meant, but they kind of like the way I said right. it. So I end up having to rewind. And that culture clash, this newness really came to a head for me in this company I was working at. For example, I was told you need to be less British. Wow. I didn't quite know what that meant, you know, right? I, maybe I was too campy. Maybe that was the way it was being, uh, Maybe the way, that was the way it was being telegraphed. I was also told you need to shave your beard because CEOs don't have beards, <laughs> which is demonstrably false, right? But there was a pressure on me to homogenize, mm -hmm. to look and behave like everyone else. And that really was a huge shift from coming from a creative international corporation where... I was able to challenge institutions, have a say shaping the national conversation, to moving to a place where I cannot vote, where I'm an outsider. I can just about control maybe the building I'm living in right yeah. now, the HOA board or something, right. and into a feet first, into American corporate culture, which does not celebrate diversity. Mm. And that situation horrific for my mental health. And it all came to a head where I was on the way to work and had a suicide attempt, nearly jumped in front of a train. Mm. And somehow I got to the office and went through a two hour conference call before saying to my husband, I need you to come get me because I'm falling apart. Mm. Thank you for sharing that um, very personal story and uh, so many moments of your life and, and a bit about how you've ended up where you are today and a bit about, you know, why you're doing what you're doing today. What then from that, from those moments and sort of seems pretty safe to say that this was, that was one of those moments where in your own life, you were missing that certain something that is a part of your mission today. Where and how in those moments then do you arrive to sex and intimacy coaching? 
Well, I left the BBC because I got where I wanted to go. I, I kind of thought that my work defined me, right? If I was to be hit by a bus tomorrow, what would my obituary say? I knew the first sentence, right? Oh, well, you know, war-winning journalist. But what came next? And so when I had this, like, lowest moment of my time, uh, lowest moment of my life, I had then got introduced to therapy for the first time because we don't do therapy in Britain, right? <laughs> Stiff up a lip. <laughs> I, yeah, it's true, right? Um, I had to think about what was important to me. So I left a job because I thought it identified me, but then I moved and tried something new and somehow felt oppressed by it. What was the common thread here? Well, I had not properly identified what it really was I wanted to change in my life because I didn't know how I wanted to be the real me. What was me at my core that allowed me to be myself in any scenario and not have to do this code switching, this self-editing of the way you carry yourself, the kind of language that you're using. I appreciate there are many jobs that require a form of diplomacy or um, language that might be appropriate for a different audience. But there is real power in making sure that the place, the culture of a business in particular, or the culture of a town or city that you're living in, is intersecting properly with your values. Because I didn't want anyone else uh, to get to this same point that I was. So I talked freely about the way it damaged my mental health. It took me a year to recover. But in mm -hmm. that time, I was able to cultivate those nurturing relationships, focus on what I found most valuable in my life, and build connections. Building connections in America when you aren't working is really tough. Because if you go to a cocktail party or something like that, one is like the second question out of people's mouth. First is, what's your name? Yeah, what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. And people's minds are blown when you're not working. Yeah. They're like, oh, oh my gosh, what, what, do I, what do I say next? Oh, right. We, we love to put each other in boxes. So I had a kind of gift there of like, I wasn't working, I was working on me. And that forced me to create friendships that were disconnected from that work. And very soon, people I knew were kind of asking me, hey, James, you know, you've had these like, big changes, big moments in your life, and you seem still, still seem to be here and trucking. What happened? How can I do that too? I just found I really adored listening to people, understanding their story, and just like being a journalist, taking this huge, complicated uh, quilt of people's lives and turning it into a simple narrative that outside approach to lend some kind of objectivity and point out the common threads. And for gay people, as I said earlier, sex is something that straight society defines us. And if you're on the dating apps at all, you are forced to tick a box. I am top bottom verse. Well, there is so much more spectrum to gay existence and connection with other men outside of those three specific ways of putting a penis in a butt, right? <laughs> yep. There are so many more things that you can do to have pleasure. 
so many more things you can do to create intimate connection with other people. And so I became a certified tantra coach, for example. That's around look, basically connection, meditation, energy exchange with people. But I also delved into sex education. Think of it like an a in-person hand-holding of some of the kind of stressful experiences that you might encounter. For example, I've taken a client to a bathhouse for the first time. Mm. Now, that seems to blow people's mind. But if you think about it, and you're a young, young gay person, or even an older gay person, and you've maybe walked through a city and you're like, oh, there's a bathhouse. I know that people are having sex in there. That seems really strange to me. Like, why would people want to go and have anonymous sex? Well, first of all, their minds are blown that people might make friends there too. Because historically, right. actually, bathhouses were where gay men went because they were safe. It was a container for people to be their authentic selves. And in fact, artists like Boy George and Bette Midler have performed in bathhouses, right? Wow. They were entertainment spaces. Yeah. And now we're left with just the sex part. But if you have only ever seen these places from the outside, or maybe you've gone on the website and like, mm, I'm kind of interested and intrigued by this, but the frequently asked questions are about membership and how much the thing costs. What you actually really want to know is, gosh, what, what do I need to wear? Is my like body type going to be accepted here? Right. Like, is, is this like really a gym? I know it says it's a gym, but maybe it's something else. I don't really know. And these stressful moments, these kind of really weird things that we have in the gay world that if you were to just be plopped into, seem completely alien, I help them understand what those things are. Amazing work. And yeah, it, it's interesting to think about the origins of some of these places and activities and what it's become today. And, you know, maybe finding that kind of, um, you know, middle ground in there or some kind of meeting of it, meeting of the original place and, and what it was. And it's just like another conversation of what do we want it to be today? What do we want it to be today for us? What do we want it to be as gay community today? Well, we cannot underestimate the impact that dating apps have had on our community. Yes, you can argue that you can now find people who are nearby you. You can form those connections, particularly important when you're in less urban environments where, you know, the nearest gay person might be a thousand miles or whatever away from you. Mm -hmm. You instead form a community that's digital, not necessarily geographic. But we, but the iPhone came out in 2007. Think about that. That was 14 years ago, less than a generation ago, and smartphones entered our lives. I found my husband on Grindr, and it because that was the only app for gay dating. Mm -hmm. I found, we we met in 2010. Now, even at that point, you were beginning to see this real shift from connection to sex, right? Those things are not necessarily the same. For example, just to step back and during the pandemic, there were many gay men who contacted me because they were feeling so isolated because so much of their life was random sexual encounters or people they just happened to hang out with at the bar that they would always see was always there. There was always the new, the now and the next. But when all of that was stripped away, suddenly they're like, oh my goodness, I don't actually have anyone I can just have a conversation with. I've only got these people who are just there maybe 
temporarily or for a particular reason. So before 2007, gay men were talking on newsgroups. They were exchanging letters through PO boxes. There was much more focus on the communication than there was, let's meet up right now, let's get physical and then move on. There was more community. And instead what we've had is the disruptive element of an immediacy, great that you know everyone around you, but also stressful if you are not a fan of asynchronous communication, right? right? Or if you're not a fan of dealing with internet weirdos, because now where we're at, so many people who want to form friendships go to a bar and find people are on their phones and they do not have conversations with strangers. It's these little clicks. And then the other end of the spectrum, okay, you go onto an app to see who is around you and maybe you share some same interests, but then you're forced to tick like up to five boxes of the body type of person you're interested in or use some hashtags to describe very specifically what you are interested in, your hobbies, like, God forbid, you might be a polymath. And then you're dealing very similarly to a space like Twitter, where it is people who forget that there's a human being at the end of this conversation. Sure. And so you end up spending 90% of your time exchanging, hey, how are you? And getting either crickets or monosyllabic replies, or just people who want to unlock their dick pics. It is really stressful, really upsetting. And the damaging effect is the way we describe community today is different for everybody. It is not necessarily geographic. It might be existing in digital spaces. And that means it's really isolating if you do not know where to look. So at the end of each episode, uh, James, we invite a moment of joy and gratitude and uh, just some diverse uh, conversation and topics and kind of however each guest would like to do that and um, would invite you today to, you know, as a way to do that, um, provide us a short story that you'd like to share, a bit, bit of a meditation and a bit of a short story um, as a kind of closing with our joy and gratitude for today um, and just invite you to share with us and uh, kind of give us a sense of what this is and what we're about to hear. Yes, this is something I wrote when I was going through my low moments, trying to quantify what it is that brings me stillness. One of the best tools to work through mental health troubles is free writing or art, some kind of creative outlet to give your left-hand side analytical brain a little bit of time off. In doing some free writing at the moment, I, I realized there was this Interesting experience I had had when I was a young journalist. I was just starting out in radio and I got to do something which only since then I've realized is part of a British institution and also part of a meditation. Okay, The story will tell you a little bit about what that means, but what I'm about to read to you is an intersection of a formative moment in my life and my career connected with where I am today a way, a mechanism of unwinding that doesn't involve listening to maybe binaural beats or uh, someone talking you through breathwork exercises. Instead, it's some language that doesn't really mean anything unless you're clued in. So let me take it away. I walked into the room, paper in one hand, cup of tea in the other. It was quiet in here. 
more than quiet. No traffic sounds, no electrical hum, no echoes either. It's all the foam padding on the walls and the ceiling around me. I'd heard that this makes some people nauseous, throws them off balance, but it made me feel safe, embraced almost, and it had become my favourite place in the world. I took a seat in a high-backed chair and glanced at the red LED digital clock, 053347 GMT. Just over a minute to go, so plenty of time for a swig of tea and a final glance over the trickier words. Michael caught my eye through the sliver of glass in the wall ahead of me, and he winked. He knew today was a big deal for me, and he'd given me the chance to do it, so I'd better not fuck it up. 053455. Michael was about to finish, so I take a deep breath and carefully slide a control in front of me. Red lights begin to glow brightly. 053456. 57. 58. 59. Double O. Showtime. Viking. North at Syrah, south at Syrah, north four or five, occasionally six, showers, moderate. Forties. Cromarty, fourth, east or northeast, three, mainly fair, good. You'll hear this peculiar cryptic sentences like these four times a day, every day, on BBC Radio across the United Kingdom. This is the shipping forecast, and it's Britain's nautical weather report. Tyne, Dogger, Fisher, northeast five to seven, rain later, good, becoming moderate. German Bight, Humber, Thames, east backing south for a time, six, decreasing four later, squally showers, moderate or good. 200 years ago, Admiral Robert Fitzroy was the captain of the ship that brought Charles Darwin to the Galapagos Islands. Back then, storms at seas would sink ships and cost lives. The Admiral had a solution. He created the weather forecast and telegraphed it around the UK. Special flags were hoisted in harbours to warn ships heading out to sea. The forecasts made their way to newspapers, and while they were ridiculed by readers at the time, they became indispensable for sailors and for fishermen. Two years after the BBC was founded, it aired its first shipping forecast, and now I would get to read it on the radio for my first time almost a century later. Dover, White, Portland, Plymouth, Southwest 6 to 7, becoming cyclonic later, rain moderate. Biscay, South Finisterre, Northwest Gale 8 or Severe Gale 9, veering northeast, showers, mainly good. These strange nouns are real places, regions of the waters around Great Britain named after coastal towns, islands, or sandbanks. The directions and numbers refer to the wind. Isolated adjectives like good or poor describe visibility. Sailors don't need it anymore. They've got weather radar and smartphones with internet access. And the BBC has tried to move the time it's broadcast or stop it altogether, but receive national outcry. It's become part of the country's cultural fabric, a spoken word love poem to the sea. North Finisterre, Seoul, Lundy, Fastnet, Cyclonic 6 to 7, becoming north or northeast, 6 to gale 8, rain or showers, moderate or good. Irish Sea, Northeast backing north, six to gale eight, 
occasional rain, moderate or good. Four times a day, every day, the exact same time. For many people, it helps them fall asleep. The 0148 forecast, that's 48 minutes past midnight for my American friends here, is one of the most popular. So much so, you can now listen to it on an app for meditation. Shannon, Rockall, Malin, Northeast 5 or 6, occasionally 7 in South at first, showers, good. Hebrides, Bailey, Fair Isle, Faroes, Southeast Iceland, Northeast 4 or 5, occasionally 6, showers, moderate or good. But now, as I sit in that high back chair in the soundproof room, rather than sending people off to sleep, I would be waking them up. Sunday, November 6th, 2006, joining the ranks of BBC broadcasters in history and trying my best not to fuck it up. Thanks for listening. That's lovely. Thank you for that. It's truly meditative, the, the weather report. Right. There's something about not just the intonation of the voice. It's about words which don't really mean anything, and they come in a different order every time. You never know what the forecast is going to be, so it is different four times a day. But that routine, four times exactly the same time every day, and that particularly late night one, is something that not only gives us a certainty, gives us a steady course in life, because there's so many, there's so few things in our life which have been around forever, right? That moment of calm that you know is going to come every day is, I think it's a gift. I would agree. And um, I think while there's the, the expectation that it's going to happen, uh, there's also the surprise of like you said, the words, the numbers, you don't know. So you know something is coming, but we don't know exactly what. Um, so I, I think it's a wonderful meditative exercise of anticipating that special time, but being open to what arrives in that time. So it's a, a wonderful spiritual message too. So thank you for that. Yeah, the, the meteorological equivalent of counting sheep. <laughs> exactly. So nice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, James, if anyone listening would like to um, be in contact with you in any way, how can they find you? Well, you can go to my website, thegaylifesherpa.com. That's thegaylifesherpa.com. And uh, just hit that contact button. Schedule some time to chat with me. I am definitely not a salesperson, right? And that emphasis on community is really important to me. I live here in Chicago, and of course, I inhabit like this metropolitan bubble. So I just actually really enjoy talking to people wherever they are, hearing a little bit about what they're going through and giving them a couple of ideas about how to move on with their life. And even if we don't start working together, hopefully get them thinking about what authenticity will mean to them. Excellent. Thank you so much, James, for being here today, for sharing a bit about you, your life, your journey and your work and for introducing us to the art and practice of mixing meteorology and meditation. And a reminder and encouragement that anyone listening who might be experiencing suicidal thoughts or needs support 
should reach out to someone, such as a family member, friend, partner, counselor, or mental health professional. For more information or support, visit the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline's website at suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thank you again to everyone who stopped by today to be a part of this conversation. I am again Brian Anthos. You can find out more about me at brianthos.com. That's B-R-Y-A-N-A-N-T-H-O-S dot com. James, thank you again so much for today. Thank you, Brian. So long, everyone. And until next time.